Welcome to the Autism News Network. My name is Dr. Gwinnett, and I'm joined by two producers and stars of the Autism News Network. Uh, first of all, our producer, which is... Well, hello there. My name is Magnus. Magnus will be chilling in the background, making sure that the ones and twos are handled with our recording. Yes, and, sir. And I am Jackson Hamilton. And Jackson, you are a producer of the Autism News Network. And what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about Taylor Swift for the most part, but a little bit of Kanye West and a little bit of Britney Spears. For the most part, Taylor Swift. Cool. And we'll be delving into some, um, obviously, some fandom topics. We'll talk about music, talk about um, what it's like to be a star, you know, from our perspective as fans. We'll talk a little bit about psychology and maybe what drives stars uh, to be so productive and also, you know, what drives them to hold on to maybe grudges that they come across does that fuel them in their careers um, and talk a little bit about the qualities that make uh, a recording artist able to be successful over decades um, and not self-sabotage so some very interesting topics we're going to cover today I'm really pleased and we're off and running we are here today discussing the Taylor Swift fandom in the context of psychological science this is the first podcast in a series that's covering the Kanye Taylor feud from its beginnings in 2009 at the VMAs for her videos in the Fearless album, where upon Kanye stormed onto the stage and said that Beyonce should have gotten the award instead. While that may have been crass, uh, Kanye was later diagnosed as bipolar, and a lot of people believe that interruption was a bipolar episode, specifically a depressive episode, and that the way Taylor Swift handled it was not the most appropriate or the most empathetic given his psychiatric diagnosis, and that the famous feud contributed to the not the best treatment of people with um, bipolar and related disorders. So, what we're hoping in this podcast is not to lash out in heavy criticism of Taylor Swift or Kanye West. Um, we're Swifties here. We're both Taylor Swift fans. And what we hope to do is to give people the tools to handle um, mental crises like a bipolar episode in real time. So if they have a friend or an associate that is having a mental health crisis of a similar nature, they'll know what to do, both in the short term, how to address the crisis, and in the long term, how to have a relationship with someone who has these crises. And insofar as we will criticize them, we believe that criticism is warranted and legitimate, especially because of the power and influence that uh, the characters in the saga hold, especially Taylor Swift who could have used her influence to reduce the harm to all of the people who saw that incident and her reaction to it, um, to reduce the harm to people who are suffering from these conditions by giving their friends and associates the tools to handle them so that um, when they're having a bipolar episode or a similar episode, they don't lose their job, they don't lose their friends, they don't get in trouble with HR or even legal trouble over this stuff, and that we can hopefully create more love and reduce as much suffering as possible. And that is what we are trying to do in this series. Um, Dr. Bennett, do you want to pick up? What a great introduction, Jackson. I wanted to thank you for launching this series of pods and give a shout out to Magnus for producing today's podcast. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the genesis of, 
of this show um, has been our mutual fandom and Taylor Swift. Um, and we've talked about uh, her genius as a musician, um, but just as an icon in, in America and throughout the world. Um, you know, multi-talented, just seems like everything she does t turns to gold. Um, and this incident, I think, was a, a turning point in her career and potentially Kanye's career. So I do think there's a, it's, it's interesting, you know, from an entertainment standpoint, but then also from a mental health standpoint, you know, we are gonna, you know, talk with very broad brushstrokes um, based on information Kanye himself disclosed to the public. You know, I think it's, it's always tricky when you're speculating about someone's diagnosis, but he has um, disclosed that. So we're gonna kinda talk through it. And, um, but the first episode that is today, we're gonna really dive deep into Swifty fandom. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Jackson, tell us how you got to be a Taylor fan. Well, um, that started in the late 2000s. I mean, I grew up in white southern suburbia. So, um, well, Taylor Swift wasn't that big of a deal to people across the world or even across the country back in 2009 um, and 2008 when this incident happened. Uh, she was a pretty big deal where I was growing up, which was Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Um and, you know, I heard her music, and it was obviously really catchy. It was really flowing. It had that, but the rhythm was, you know, relatively fast-paced, but not too fast-paced. And it was country, right? It was semi-country country yeah. at that point. I mean, 2006 Taylor is um, full-on country. That's our song. That's Tim McGraw. By 2008, the Fearless album, it's semi-country. I mean, okay. there's country songs in there, but... Uh, the degree to which Love Story is a country song or a pop song is a matter of debate. Okay, so because I had read somewhere that she was heavily influenced and inspired by Shania Twain uh, earlier. Yeah, so yeah. Pure country. Yes. And then, so she started kind of in country, but then um, you said, what's the first album, Fearless? Uh, well, her first, al her first studio album is the eponymous Taylor Swift album okay. from 2006. Right. Um, which she didn't actually redo, even though she has the same problems with that album as she has with the other albums. Yeah, and that's something we can talk about is the, the dispute with record companies. But what, yeah. What does the um, Taylor, Swift, Taylor Swift album look like on the cover? Uh, so it's a picture of her and a bunch of translucent designs on it okay um it's not that interesting i don't actually have that many songs from that album yeah on my playlist i do have our song and tim mcgraw from that okay. album and it was it launched her into b-list stardom in 2006 yeah. and obviously she wouldn't get to a-list stardom without having done that yeah. but apparently it wasn't close enough to her heart that she decided she was going to re-record it which i was actually disappointed in because i did want to um, hear the re-recordings of the songs that he did have on my playlist, see what they were like, and also if there was any In the Vault stuff from way back in 2006 sure. that she had, because um, that would be really interesting to see um, what she threw out back then. Yeah. What, um, what was the song that got you hooked? I wouldn't say that any song got me hooked on her. My favorite song is Love Story, which Love is kind of classic. But early on, is that was that an early song? That was Well, that was an early song. It comes out in the Fearless album in 2008, so it's a fairly early Taylor Swift okay. song and um, I think it actually um, is an anthem song we could use in the psych department since I consider it to be an anti-suicide anthem okay. it's happy ending Romeo and Juliet and can't really get more anti-suicide than rewriting the most famous suicides in history to not be suicides very so, interesting I didn't realize that that's what it's about yeah I mean you said you're a Swifty you don't know <laughs> I'm an old man 
So well, you know, I'm I know. Into the last three or four albums, I can't go back to the origins. Okay, yes. Yeah, so a teenager when she came on the scene. I was already <laughs> old. <laughs> well, yeah, but you can always go back. And she re-released the entire Fearless album uh, this past. Um, April, so I mean yeah. that's not an excuse. <laughs> she re-recorded "Love Story" on gotcha. and released that on April 9th. So, yeah. so anyway, I mean "Love Story" is a happy ending to Romeo and Juliet, and so I figured, well, that seems like a very appropriate song to have in a psych department. Sure, it's um, ending on hopeful note. And yeah, yeah, yeah. An anthem note. Oh, it's, it was an anth- anthem for their department. So I think uh, you could propose that to the students yeah. if they wanted to do that. So, so in you know, in my humble opinion, the, the album "1989" was just like, but when I grew up. Michael Jackson's Thriller was the biggest album of all time. It still could be, where it was just like every single song was like a potential number one. Um, and 1989 seemed to have that, you know, same aspect. Would you would you say that there's a particular song either on 1989 or another album that just made her a worldwide number one? Artist? So my favorite song on 1989 is Blank Space. Mm-hmm. With regards to um, her music, I don't think there's any particular song that stands out. There are certainly songs they like more than others, and the way I like them could be I like some more musically, I like some more lyrically. Yeah. I like Love Story for, um, in part, content reasons. Again, I work in mental health and have had mental health crises, and it's, since that's an anti-suicide song, I think that relates to me personally cool. and a lot of the people that I work with. Um, it's also, I guess, since it's about Romeo and Juliet, it's also kind of anti-sectarian conflict and yeah. anti-feuding, which is a bit ironic for her. But um, it, so it, there's also a political aspect to the song as well, and so I like it for those reasons. Um, but I wouldn't say that there is a particular song that got me hooked or yeah. that made me really like it. It's not like um, Kurt Cobain's Toothache, where he had like one hit of heroin and it just set him off. Right. Um, so, so with like the song "Shake It Off," for example, that that. To me, again, as a not a core, you know, an, an OG fan, that was seen to be the song that really catapulted her from A list to V list. I mean, she is absolutely the queen now. And shake it off. That that might have some mental health aspects too, right? Because it's about yeah, letting yeah. The criticism and the haters. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that could also have some mental health aspects as well. And I would love to go into all of this stuff in later episodes as we go into a psychiatric analysis of things Swifty. Yeah. Um, Talk about the employment of her um, music for therapeutic purposes, or if not therapeutic purposes, at least anthem purposes for therapy. (sighs) There's an emotional component to her songs, too. Like, there's a lot of them about breakups or tough relationships. I mean, all of them are autobiographical to a lesser or greater degree. Uh-huh. And um, sometimes it's um, really good, but sometimes it's not so good. Um, I mean, I like her as a celebrity. I'm a member of her fandom, but I am not an unquestioning loyal fan, member of her cult, if you will. Right. So I'll give criticism where criticisms do. Yeah. How does she treat her fans? Well, she's fairly loyal to her fans. I don't have any criticism in terms of being disrespectful to them. But have you heard stories about, like, cool things she's done for her fans or with her fans? I have. I mean, she's helped them out when they're in financial situations. She has come to their houses if they've been in a crisis. I mean, she's done, um, like, anti-bullying concerts. So I think... Is that right? Yes, That's she, really cool. she has. Um, so, and she's also very charitable with her money. Um, yeah. So she's used the money she's made as an A-list celebrity to help a lot of people in financial co- and various um, social causes. But I think she has, in one of my criticisms of her, she has failed in her responsibility as a public figure to rein in her fandom. Um, and what do you mean by that? 
Well, John Mayer got death threats uh-huh. after the most recent re-recording, the re-recording of Red. I see. So that album contained a song about their breakup. It was kind of like a... Well, well, it was mostly about the Gyllenhaal breakup. Yeah. He's had other songs about um, the Mayer breakup. but And Gyllenhaal, I also believe, got death threats. Because of breaking up with Taylor and her Well, fans because her like... fans are... Because, again, they're not... At that point, you go from being a fan to being a cult member. Yeah. And that gets a bit dangerous. First, one of my more general criticisms of Taylor Swift yeah. is that she lingers on to her grudges for so long and that she holds on to them so intensely. Yeah. And as a Christian and as a human, I believe that you should try to love and make up with everybody if you can. Yeah. It's especially pertinent to Kanye case because he, he was suffering from a severe mental health crisis. Yeah. And so I think that it's especially important that she publicly forgive him and try to show empathy yeah. so people who are in similar crises I mean, um, it's, do it's that. interesting. There's a, you know, I think that part about forgiveness versus there's also things that can motivate people to greatness. You know, like um, I think about in the NBA, you know, years ago, Michael Jordan had rivalries with other great players that drove him because he was such a competitor that he wanted to be the best, and it really drove him. And he didn't alienate other people in the process. He 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 was able to do that while still building a huge fan base and doing well, great it, it, support. Yeah. Do you feel like? Do you feel like that's part of Taylor? Like, because she is the greatest. It seems like right now. Does do you think she needs that fuel to motivate? Well, herself? I think there's. A, it depends. I mean, there are multiple types of feuds, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's a sportsman type feud, right? Yeah. Where it's good sportsmanship. It's there's good chivalry. Um, we're competing in the music industry, and we've had some fun insults at each other, but we don't actually hate each other, and yeah. we're willing to break bread, get coffee, and yeah. laugh about life, right? And I think. It's one thing to have a school spirit level feud like that. Right. But when it becomes cult level or nationalist level, yeah. at that point it becomes problematic. And at that point... So you feel like she could have directed her fans and said, hey guys, cool it, let's not make death threats towards my exes. Well, I, was, I would hope that she would go above and beyond that. Uh-huh. Um, so I think what she should do is not say, hey, it's okay to hate people on my behalf, but don't go so far as to send death threats at them. I don't want her to be saying that. I want her to be saying, look, they were sucky boyfriends. It was a long time ago. I'm over it. Um, We're friends now or we're acquaintances and uh, I'm willing to get coffee with them and uh, uh, break bread with them. I've completely forgiven them and if you are a loyal fan of mine, you will express the same sentiments in your life, yeah. both towards right. my exes and towards the exes in your life. Yeah. That you will use my example of forgiving my exes and making up with them and moving on psychologically yeah. and try to do it yourself. And that's what she and, should have and, done. And it's interesting because you're, that's a really great approach and I would imagine that when she re-recorded the albums, she she must have kind of re-experienced a lot of the feelings she had when she made the original recordings. Did you ever think like, well, I think she admitted to that in interviews. Yeah. And also, while she had been mildly feuding with Mayor and Hall up to that point, yeah. those had been on the back burner for her. Yeah. They were on bad terms, but they hadn't, she hadn't been actively pursuing the feuds until she decided to re-record her albums, which dug all that stuff up. Gotcha. Which makes the death threats a bit more absurd yeah. because not only are they sending death threats to John Mayer, her and John Mayer broke up in the year 2010. Yeah, it's like a retroactive... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. sending, they didn't just send death threats to whatever yeah. ex is. They sent death threats to someone she broke up with 11 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of makes it even more absurd. Yeah. And um, I think that... And I think later we can talk about 
one of the later um, podcasts in the series, we can talk about um, parasocial relationships and how strong they can be. Sure. Um, one other question that I wanted to ask you, do you feel like, um, well, well, let me ask you, could you explain to the audience first, we mentioned the re-recording a couple of times, yeah. like why that was necessary for those who don't know? Okay, so uh, Taylor Swift, like most up-and-coming artists, um, didn't have the capital or resources at her disposal to go big on her own. So she was signed to a label, and that label got the rights to her masters, to the original recordings of her songs, and she got into some dispute with them. I don't know the exact details of it, but she ended up leaving Big Machine Records, which was the label she signed up to, and she wanted some type of deal where she would still have the rights to make money off of her songs, and she would still have ownership of them, or at least partial ownership of them, and they refused to let her have that, and then it was sold to another guy, and then she tried to buy them with her enormous capital. She's like, you want $100 million for it? I don't know what the exact figure was, but something like that, and he um, said, sure, but we're going to have an NDA, and you're not going to say anything bad about me, and knowing Taylor Swift, not letting her write diss tracks against you and a literal distract or a metaphorical one ain't something she's going to sign up for. So, uh, so the re-recording, how does that work from a business standpoint? Like, and, and what was the fans' response to the re-recording? So my background is in political science, history, and psychology. So yeah. I'm not that versed in copyright law. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be able to speak with authority on that. Well, but now it's like she has her own masters of those albums. Yeah, yeah. It, I, it's I, called Taylor's version, right? Yes, and so I'm still confused as to whether she has to pay royalties to the originals when she's doing this and she gets money from that too. Again, I have a little background in law, but that's like uh, constitutional law, yeah. civil rights law, stuff like that. Um, insofar as I have worked with lawyers um, and in political science, none of it has involved copyright law, yeah. so I'm not going to attempt but, to pretend to know yeah, what I'm talking about. But the fans seem to have loved the re-recording. Can you like tell us about that? Well, I think uh, the reason they love the re-recording has a lot less to do with the recordings themselves. The recordings themselves are, for the most part, very similar to the original. Uh-huh. I didn't bother re-downloading Love Story from the Fearless re-release. I had the original. I don't need another copy of it. Yeah. And they work. Um, it works just as fine. Uh, I think they love the re-recordings less because of the differences in quality. They're not really different in quality. They're they're about the same. Some are slightly better. Some are slightly worse. But mostly because they have a strong parasocial relationship with Taylor Swift. And they are rooting for her act of revenge. So Interesting. They like the albums because of the intention behind them and uh, the sweet score she's settling with the people that she's against. Especially the record companies. Especially yeah. the record companies. Yeah, not necessarily the ex-boyfriends. No. Yeah. So so um, just for a second, I wanted to step back and just kind of acknowledge some of her accomplishments. I mean, if you look at, first of all, she's an accomplished recording artist, singer, guitarist. She's also... A writer of all her songs, um, at least writer or co-writer, which is, I think, in terms of her creative genius, she's been able to cross over from country to pop to electronic to now she's doing more folky, you know, acoustic numbers, and she's just scored on every level with all those different genres. And I think it's time to maybe acknowledge 
how unprecedented this is for an artist, first of all. And I've really never seen an artist go back and re-record multiple albums um, and all that energy and time. And, you know, she's... You, you think about her level of functioning, and this is where maybe my psychiatrist hat comes in, but it's like you got somebody who's... Uh, takes great care of her voice. You know, seems to be physically healthy. Um, you know, r- r- is very very productive. Is successful. She's recording videos. She's touring. Uh, I mean, the amount of productivity that she's had is just amazing. And the consistency from a very young age to now. She's 32 now. I mean, even Michael Jackson. When you look at his career, starting at age six or seven, you know, I, he's really the only one I can think of in terms of his multi-talented, multi generational and multi-genre you know ability that he had are we looking at the next Michael Jackson um well I would be reluctant to make that comparison for a few reasons firstly because of what happened professionally Uh, professionally um I mean again I would probably choose another pop superstar um given how Michael Jackson's story ended Elvis maybe um I think Elvis is better um you compare it to the Beatles? I would compare it to Elvis and the Beatles. I think, okay. yeah, the next Elvis. First, Elvis started off country, um, just like Taylor Swift did. It went into pop or rock and roll, rather. Um, so I think, but I think one principal different. I think Springsteen, I think, would be my, that would be the comparison I would make. To go and use, she might be the next Springsteen, I think, okay. in terms of her professional popularity. Um, and I would actually say that Springsteen's a better comparison also because he's one of the handful of superstar artists who has managed to survive relatively intact without having some horrible scandal or personal crisis um, drive them down, which is exactly what you're talking about with Taylor Swift. Um, Substance use. uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, Elvis, poly drug addiction, and died on his toilet. Kurt Cobain through heroin. I think even Prince, unfortunately, who was really a multi-talented generational superstar, unfortunately, his demise seems like it was opiates. Yeah, so Springsteen, I think, is one of the best examples of an artist who makes it to the super A-list and doesn't come crashing down after that. And he also has the background of kind of Americana country, which is obviously Taylor's background. He also writes his own stuff. He's a very talented lyricist, as as Taylor is. That's a good comparison. Yeah, and and the settings of their songs are also relatively similar. I mean, again, because of her background in country and his background in Americana... There's this kind of small town setting, which Taylor abandoned during her middle albums like Reputation and Lover, but she's kind of coming back to. So I would compare her to Springsteen and say that she's the next Springsteen. And I don't believe that she's going to crash because I do believe that whatever personal system she has going for, it's working. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. she's going to keep her relative sanity. Yeah. Um, this is maybe a question, uh, hopefully, uh, well, I didn't want to surprise you, but... Could you talk about Britney Spears for a second? Because that's somebody who was an international superstar, kind of America's sweetheart, and then things went horribly off track. Do you want to make a few comments about about her path and maybe how it's differed from Taylor's? I'll say Taylor was not a corporate product from her origins. Britney Spears was discovered by Disney, and she was a mouseketeer, Uh if I remember correctly. And her father also had some controlling issues over her. Taylor's family seems to have been supportive Firstly, secondly, Taylor's family also had some experience with stardom before this happened. Okay. If you listen to the Evermore album, there is a song called Marjorie. And it's not about Marjorie Taylor Greene, to my dismay. That would have been very funny. But it's about her grandmother, 
yes. her, I believe her maternal grandmother, who was not an A-list celebrity, but she was a B-list celebrity, especially in Latin America. And she is singing tours, and she was relatively famous. Again, not an A-list celebrity, but a B-list celebrity. I believe that taught them enough about the realities of fame and stardom that it inoculated them against the worst. They knew what to expect. They knew how to handle it. And so I think those two factors, having a relatively stable and supportive family and also having some experience with wealth and fame and notoriety from her maternal grandmother, Marjorie. So I think those are the two significant factors in why Britney collapsed and why um, Taylor didn't. This also gets into Kurt Cobain, who's kind of a racks to riches story. And that's one of the things that makes him crash. He was pretty poor when he got started off. He rocketed to success. And then um, he couldn't deal with his life. And he ended up blowing his brains out with a shotgun in a closet. And that's that's definitely uh, something we're speculating a bit about because we don't know the full story, but yeah, there's definitely some serious concerns there, and that's an interesting theory. You know, because you're right, there are certain artists that do end up imploding, and many of them are child actors, child stars. It seems like Taylor was able to start a career at a young age where she was formed enough, and it seemed like the the, the impetus to become you know involved in the music industry came from within, came from her. Yeah, she wasn't just dragged on that path by by someone else and, and I think in terms of staying power she's probably 20 years plus in now and she's at the top of her game it's been really cool to watch her and I I saw uh, some videos of her interacting with uh, backstage with some girls who I guess won a contest or something and got to meet Taylor backstage and it's just the most adorable thing to watch these you know, young people look up to her and how she treats them too. That yeah. she she remembers what it was like to be ten or eleven years old and want to be, you know, a musician. Yeah. And another thing that I think works in Taylor's favor is her capacity for metacognition. That she's able to What's that? Oh right, yes. Um so for people who don't have a background in psych, metacognition is the self-awareness of one's own thought processes and mental landscape and things. The awareness of one's own psychology. And I believe in the ability to do that gives you much better control over your impulses. It puts your prefrontal cortex in a lot more control of your amygdala for the most part and the other more instinctive parts of yourself. So I think uh, from a psychological perspective, from, uh, again, not diagnosing anything, but I think Taylor Swift's prefrontal cortex is a lot more in control of the back of her head than other artists. And it is that in part because she has a better understanding of what's going on back there. And she knows what levers and what police to manipulate in order to function in her situation. Absolutely. Well, this has been an awesome first episode of our series on Taylor Swift. We talked about her rise to fame, some of her highlights of her career, some tie-ins with other artists and comparisons. And in episode two, we are going to get into the prime beef. That is the beef. Yes. Between Taylor Swift and I love Magnus. What what does he call Uh, himself? The one they call Yeezy. Yeah, Yeezy. So we're going to talk about that beef between those two celebrities and where they've gone since then. Um, We'll touch a little bit on emotional issues and psychological issues in that discussion. But Jackson, I wanted to thank you for, for doing this. 
definitely. It's been fun, and I think we've covered a lot of ground, and this will be one of the more unique podcasts about Taylor Swift out there by fans, because there are lots of podcasts made about Taylor Swift by Swifties, but few that get into the science and the sociology and the psychology of these issues, which is both really fun and really educational, and hopefully in the end will be really helpful to people, given what we're trying to do with it. Sounds great. Well, Jackson, thank you. And Magnus, thanks for producing today. We will see you guys at the next episode. You've been listening to the Autism News Network, and we'll see you next time.